Hello and welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Tillman and Egon Zender Limited, and the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 32. This week we will be looking at an area of employment law that is always interesting, restraint of trade. Restraint of trade is something that arises out of an ongoing friction in the economics of employment. On the one hand, you have the right to work anywhere you would like to, and if a better job comes up somewhere else then you should be able to take it. On the other hand, say you have a job where you are trying to make the best ice cream possible, the company that employs you obviously doesn't want you to quit and then join a rival company and pass on all the secrets that you have learned. That is where restraint of trade comes in because it is a clause in the employment contract that restricts what employees can do once they have left the company. Of course you can't have a clause that says so and so can never work for anyone else ever again and so it is up to the courts to decide what is reasonable and try to strike the right balance. In these proceedings, the employer is Egon Zender and the employee is Tillman. Tillman worked for Egon Zender for more than 13 years, but eventually decided to move over to a rival company. That means we need to look at the restraint of trade clause in the employment contract, wherein Tillman promises that she will not, quote, directly or indirectly engage or be concerned or interested in any business carried on in competition with any of the businesses of Egon Zender, end quote. The bit that Tillman had a real issue with was the use of that phrase interested in. In theory, the application of this clause would mean that there would be a breach, even if an employee only had a minor shareholding in a rival. As a result, Tillman submitted that such a clause was far too broadly worded, and so because it represented an unreasonable restraint of trade, It was void and she was free to go and work for the new employer without having to wait for the designated period per the contract. Egon Zender did not think much to this and applied for an injunction to prevent Tillman entering into her new job. That injunction was granted but then set aside by the Court of Appeal. By the time the case moved up to the Supreme Court, the main questions were how that phrase interested in should be interpreted in the context of restraint of trade. And also, if there is an issue with the broadness of the clause, whether that phrase, interested in, can simply be severed out and the remainder of the clause would be able to still stand on its own. The starting point here is to note that an employment contract is still a contract, and so the core principles of contract law do apply. This is relevant here in the context of the validity principle, which basically assumes that the parties to any contract will have intended that contract to be valid. Beyond that, another seemingly obvious but fundamental principle was applied by the Supreme Court. It is not good enough that there are two meanings of a word or phrase that are equally plausible. In other words, some sort of decision has to be made and it is the definition that is the most realistic that must take priority when there is disagreement between the parties. Applying all of this to the facts of this case, we can note that the use of the phrase interested in is a pretty standard construction in restraint of trade clauses and is generally used to refer to a shareholding rather than anything else. The employer, Egon Zender, was unable to put forward any alternative interpretation that was especially realistic in the eyes of the justices, and so the restraint of trade clause prohibited an employee from having even a minor shareholding in a rival company. 
The next question is whether this constitutes a restraint of trade, and Lord Wilson, who gave the lead judgment, was pretty quick to conclude that such a broad restriction on the actions of an employee does represent an unreasonable restraint of trade. It might be tempting to think that this is the end of the case and that Tillman was successful in her bid to escape the restraint of trade clause in her contract, but that was not necessarily the case as we also have to examine the second issue that arose during these proceedings, namely severance. Remember, this is the idea that if certain words or phrases in a contract are invalid, then it is possible that these on their own can be cut out without having to invalidate the entire clause or even the entire contract. This would mean that instead of the clause saying that Tillman will not be, quote, concerned or interested in any business, it would instead say that she will not be concerned in any business. Of course, it is not as simple as that, because courts have to be very careful about sticking their nose in and tipexing out bits of an agreement between two private parties. There are limited circumstances in which this will be allowed, but this itself is an open question, and so the first thing that the Supreme Court had to do was decide which approach they should adopt with respect to severance. On the one hand, there is the older 1920 case of Atwood and Lamont that limits the use of severance to where there are a combination of different promises made by one party to another. In that situation, the promises themselves can be split up and severed as appropriate. On the other hand, there is the more recent case of Beckett Investment Management Group Limited and Hall from 2007 that offers a three-stage test for severance. The first part is whether the invalid wording can simply be removed without having to change any of the other words in the contract. Secondly, the promises that remain have to still be supported by sufficient consideration, as is standard in contract law. Finally, the editing of the contract must not fundamentally alter the nature of the agreement that the parties originally entered into, or change its legal effect. Lord Wilson, alongside the other justices sitting on the case, favoured this latter test, and so all that remained was to apply it to the present proceedings. It was decided that removing or interested from the employment contract would be possible, and that it would not have any knock-on effects in line with Beckett. That was very good news for Egon Zender, as it turned the case on its head. Although the precise wording was invalid, the clause as a whole, including the restraint of trade, would still be able to stand. Thus, although the restraining period had long since passed by this point, the injunction on Tillman was formally reinstated. When it comes to analysing this case, there are two different aspects that we can think about. The legal implications of the decision, and the general effect on employment contracts. From a legal perspective, perhaps the most interesting thing is the decision to favour the approach to severance seen in Beckett over the approach in Atwood. Getting clarification on this point from the highest court in the land sets a useful precedent on an important aspect of employment law. It is not surprising that Beckett was favoured in the end, as while the ruling in Atwood makes a lot of sense, it does lack a certain nuance and can be difficult to apply to the range of employment scenarios that you are likely to come across nearly a century after the judgement was handed down. Meanwhile, Beckett takes the same test but breaks it down into its component parts and therefore allows the judge to come to a more reasoned decision that strikes a balance between allowing for invalid aspects to be severed and maintaining the integrity of the contract as a whole. The only small point to make is that in this scenario, 
either test could have probably been applied and the same result would have been achieved. So that potentially makes the decision on this point obiter, but in reality the lower courts are likely going to seize this opportunity to put Atwood to bed once and for all. Moving on, the impact on restraint of trade clauses is also likely to be significant, although perhaps not as positive. If you think about it, the principle behind the use of that phrase interested in is pretty reasonable. If you owned a company, you wouldn't want your employees to have a significant monetary investment in the competition. The reason that part of the clause was declared invalid by the Supreme Court is because it was too broad and applied to even minor shareholdings. However, this just raises a question about at what point there is a threshold or middle ground reached at which the restraint of trade would be upheld in a court of law. On this point, Lord Wilson did not really give any clear indication and that leaves a lot of uncertainty for employers as we move forward. Should they draft restraint of trade clauses so that an employee can only have a 1% shareholding in a rival? 5%? How about 10%? It really isn't clear and so an unfortunate side effect of this judgement is almost certainly going to be more litigation coming through the tribunals. Restraint of trade is all about the balance between an employee's right to work and the employers need to protect their interests. But this case has shown that getting this right is so difficult and requires precise contract drafting. Well, thanks as ever for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast and thanks to bensound.com as well for providing the theme music. Remember, you can always check out the website uklawweekly.com where we have all of the older episodes and also some of my YouTube videos as well. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!